Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. It's been a long time since I've actually gotten to record anything, so uh, it's nice to be back. This is Dan Macon up in Auburn and Dr. Rosie Bush. Um, it looks like from your background, you're on campus today. Is that right? Yep. You're in sunny Davis, California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, for those of you that are not from California, usually this time of year, it's foggy in Davis and sunny in Auburn, but today it's really, really pea soup fog in Auburn and I, I hear rumors of sunshine in the valley, so I'm yeah, jealous. It cleared up. It was very foggy yesterday, and it rained even last night and this morning, and it's blue skies right now. So We're supposed to get some cold rain maybe starting Sunday, Monday. I got a, a trip over the other side of the mountains on Thursday, and I'm a little, I'll have to revive my snow driving skills, it sounds like. It'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> So I don't know how long it's been since we've talked, but you've been on the road. You were traveling October and I think we were already through November. Is that right? I know. I don't even know what happened to November. It just kind of, <laughs> I was also traveling in November. That's right. I went to the GOAT conference. I've been traveling a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. It's been a busy fall. It has. It has been a busy fall. Do you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. I did. I went to my parents' house in San Francisco and it was beautiful. Nice. Yep. Nice. Now the, the really um, personal question, did you have lamb? We didn't. <laughs> we had turkey and it's been a number of years since my mom's made the turkey because I usually host. So I, I coached her through cooking the turkey nice. and the gravy and all that stuff. And it was awesome. She did a great job. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. We usually do turkey, but we went to, to New Mexico to see Laura. And uh, she requested that we bring home-raised California lamb for Thanksgiving. So awesome. It was good. It, was good. it looked amazing. I've never had a chimichurri with lamb. I'll tell you what, the, the Weber Barbecue New Zealand site has the best barbecue lamb recipes I've ever seen anywhere. Cool. So our, our New Zealand friends are obviously working well with, with Weber barbecues. It's, it's really good. Very cool. So <clears throat> what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> so we are nearing the end of grant writing season. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so, goodness. Yes. And, um, I happen to be traveling during all of that. So yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> but I thought it would be interesting to talk about uh, just research and kind of where extension falls in, in the middle of that, the different types of research that's out there. And I don't know, we'll see where the conversation takes us. But <laughs> cool. Yeah. So cool. Uh, I guess my first question is, what are the kinds of research that you are excited about and that kind of drives you and motivates you? Well, that's a good question. You know, I get most excited about looking at questions that, um, that other producers come up with that are obviously challenging their kind of real world um, business models. Um, and, and to be totally honest, a lot of those questions come up in our own small business too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think <clears throat> where I get excited is, is in dealing with some real world issues that are obviously having an economic or other kind of impact um, on ranching businesses. And I think for me, those are things like um, predator protection, um, on a lot of the, the disease and animal health issues that you and I've talked about, whether it's mm -hmm. coccidia or um, other, other health issues that we're dealing with. Um, I'm really interested in kind of how grazing and fire interact in California. Um, that seems like a really timely topic. And I think we've kind of operated in silos in the past, um, livestock people and range people deal with the grazing side of it and the fire people can tell us when it will or won't burn but we haven't really talked together to any great extent yeah and i, I think 
overlying all of that for me um, is the economic component to it. You know, it's one thing for me to be able to tell somebody, yeah, guard dogs will keep mountain lions from eating your sheep. Um, but I think it's also really important to know, does this make sense economically? You know, what's it going to cost? What's the economic benefit of it? And I think that component is true of, of all of those things. Yeah. What about you? Oh man. <laughs> so I did after vet school, I was in practice and then came back for an internal medicine residency just because I wasn't satisfied with just doing, I don't know. I just, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why things weren't working and why, why they did work when they did. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't know the answers to those questions. But <laughs> me either. <laughs> those kinds of things drive me. And, you know, I don't have a PhD to do necessarily that molecular level of science and things like that, but reading about it is really interesting. And what we, it's not just interesting and academic. I think a lot of people think basic research is just academic, but what we learn from those is, okay, well, we understand that now this bacteria works in this way. What if we can manage differently or what about this type of treatment? that might be a little bit more effective or so I think that we still have so much to learn about. We know these kind of high level, um, just kind of behaviors of diseases and how they seem to be transmitted, but we don't know at that really microscopic level, how these things behave in sheep and goats mm -hmm. and learning those things, I think are a lot of the keys that we just don't have yet. Not because we can't get them. <laughs> we just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Um, and I think, like you said, you know, it's one thing to know these things, but what does that mean for our producers? How can we better prevent these diseases um, or manage them so that they're not impacting our operation as much? And, you know, it's one thing for me to say we should just eliminate these diseases. But like you said, what's the economic impact of those practices? And I think that's kind of a new, exciting part of the applied science Yeah, that we get to do an extension that's really interesting to me. So, Yeah, it is to me too. It, it occurs to me, I had a, a doing a, a demonstration project um, up in Modoc County, actually working with a cattle producer to demonstrate how to bond a livestock guardian dog with cattle and it's not revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination but it's something we haven't really done much here in california and he made a really good point talking about coyotes last time i was up there in october i think it said you know there's kind of none of us really talk about this but there's kind of this acceptable level of loss um, that if we're underneath that level it's probably not worth our time and effort and expense to try to do something more about it. And I think that can be said of, of lots of production practices. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're pretty conditioned to tolerate a lot of things that we probably don't even know that we're tolerating. Yeah. And yeah. there's a whole nother side of that research puzzle. That's epidemiology. That's kind of understanding that. What yeah. are we dealing with? Right. What are we tolerating that maybe we don't even know that we're tolerating? You know, what, right. what's the production potential that maybe we're missing? And what are the questions? Is there a different way we can ask some of those questions? Uh, yeah, I was just looking at a, a paper. I don't even know why I came across it, but it's in my library of papers on the computer, you know, because I'm so tech savvy. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's a survey from the NOM study that they did in sheep in 2011. And it, they tested sheep from the 2001 study and the 2011 study for Mycoplasma ovis. And it's a bacteria that gets into the blood and it can cause hem hemolytic anemia. So it, the bacteria attaches to the red cell and then it sometimes it makes that red cell burst. So we don't really ever talk about this disease. And apparently it has a flock, it affects about a quarter of the flocks in the U.S. that mm. they tested. 
and how many animals within a flock that are positive really depends on a couple of factors, which the study talked about. It was really interesting. But the signs of that disease is very similar to internal parasitism or abortion can cause abortions or, you know, like the what we see, we probably just attribute to other things. Right. And so that's the epidemiology piece. Like, do we even know <laughs> what we're dealing with most of the time? I mean, we hear hoofbeats and we automatically think horses, <laughs> but <laughs> we have these zebras that a quarter of the flocks, that's, I mean, that's pretty impressive. So I think there's still some of that, that, you know. Do you think that there's, um, there's some relevance to how and even what questions we're asking when we work with producers in some of those cases too? Uh, maybe use an illustration. We've been asking producers what they're doing to protect their livestock from wolves. What tools are you using? And it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago that maybe the question is, how is your production practices changed in response to having predators on the landscape? And I think you get a different answer to, depending on how you ask that question. And it, it strikes me that there's lots of research questions that, that the answer kind of depends on how the question's asked and, yeah. and who it's asked of and and all of those yeah. types of things too. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things. When, so when I was studying for my boards for internal medicine, they, you were supposed to know from, I think, these top five journals, like the last five or 10 years of research. And one of the most frustrating things to me was that so much of it contradicted itself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that. It's how you ask what you're asking, what exactly you're testing, what kind of test you're doing. But it's important. It's okay that it contradicts itself. It's important to do all that work. None of it has to be right on. It just needs to get us there. So the more work that's done, the better ultimately we'll be in review of all of that material. And so we need to ask those questions five different ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because you will get different answers. So looking at them and what does that mean? And so it's good to be critical of the research that comes out. But I tend to get a bit, not paralyzed, but I tend to take a little bit too long to actually start a project because I want it to be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can. And that may be the benefit of, of working at a county level and not being as good a scientist as you are, that everything's messy <laughs> to begin with. And so, well, and know. that's the thing I could design it, not perfectly, but okay. <laughs> and then life happens. And then the right. study, I'm going to have to account for animals that, you know, fall out of the study or maybe herds that won't be able to participate for whatever reason. Right. So <laughs> right. can't right. plan for everything, I suppose. That, that's that's a really good point. And I think that's, in particular in applied research, like we do with real world producers who have a business to run and have, you know, our question seems like the most important question in the world to us, but it's one of about 50 questions that that person's going to have to answer that week. Yeah. Um, it's It's not as controlled as it might be if it were pure research in a lab, which I think probably would drive me crazy anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, we're all different types. Yeah, that's <laughs> that right. That research is perfect for that person. <laughs> and I'm glad that they do it. <laughs> that's right. And I'm glad they don't ask me to do it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I think that's, you know, that's where the applied research is so valuable because I'll just come across some of these studies and be like, huh. I wonder if, you know, so for example, there's uh, a study on utter confirmation and how that might impact or be related to litter weaning weight. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so maybe one of their conclusions was these udders that get really big and tend to be pendulous by the end of lactation might be more prone to injury, but they had higher litter weaning weights. So it was kind of like this. I don't know if you you had to decide do you really want an udder that might not have the same longevity 
as mm -hmm. a udder that produced a little bit less. So like long-term productivity might be better. I don't know. But then I look at that and I'm like, well, shoot, if litter weaning weight is a potential indicator of not just milk production, but also udder health, then maybe that's something you can use to kind of initiate a selection process and then start looking at the confirmation of that udder. And if pendulous udder is something that affects her longevity, then take that out of the equation. Mm -hmm. So you're still using all of those components and, you know, you take away a little bit of their conclusion as far as what they're suggesting and actually kind of look at it on farm and see what it means. And if that's, mm -hmm. no one's actually collecting litter weaning weeds, but <laughs> <laughs> let's say you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, a, that's an interesting part of research that I didn't realize until until I took this job really is that the conclusions in other people's work are important, but so are the questions they asked and, and the findings that led them to those conclusions, because they might, they might inform some other question that you're wondering about. Um, yeah. How do you yeah. find time to do that reading? That's, I struggle with that. <laughs> how do you... When I'm trying to put something else off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really, I really should get to this other project, but I really need to read this paper. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I see if I, I need to start doing that. I could procrastinate and be productive at the same time. Yes. That's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, it helps prepare for your next grant that you're about to write. So. <laughs> but <laughs> so my next question was about the different types of publications and how they kind of all have their place, but they're so different. Um, so why, why are peer reviewed publications important? Hmm. You're like, I don't know. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you know, I think, so I, I did not do, a research educational program. My master's was not research based. Um, and when I was an undergrad, there wasn't a lot of research expected of undergrads either. So I'm learning this kind of on the fly, it feels like. And for me, what I've realized about peer review is that it's not a way for somebody to critique. It's a way to really focus my own thinking on the things that are important and to make sure that conclusions are based on evidence. And I, I was intimidated by the peer review process early on in my academic career. And now I find it really helpful and informative to, to see what I'm thinking about through somebody else's eyes and to respond to those questions or suggestions that, that a peer has. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, <clears throat> at least in my experience, all kinds of peer review. There's kind of this peer review that, that UC does in some of our extension publications, which I think is really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, there's peer review for, <clears throat> for journal pub publications, which, um, which are helpful. But then there's also kind of this producer peer review that I, it's, it's much less formal, but I think that's really helpful for me too. Um, what what's your perspective on all that? Because you you work in that world more than I do, don't you? Yeah, I I think it is it's really important so that what is put out there in the scientific literature has kind of a a level of quality that you would come to expect, right? Um, what I think frustrates me a little bit is that certain journals can decide what they want to accept or not based on based on your conclusions or based on the topic area and it is important that even if your even if the research didn't come out the way you expected it to that's really important research yeah. <laughs> you know <clears throat> probably someone else has the same question and is you know, thinking along the same lines. And if it's not published, then those types of things get repeated. Um, so I think it is important that it's out there um, in these 
in that space where there's a level of, you know, you expect it to have a certain level of quality, but. Um, I think there's an element of, of understanding the audience of particular journals. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and understanding the audience that you're hoping your research will reach. And I think that's maybe a difference in the extension realm is that ultimately we hope our, our work is going to reach people, the end user, people that yeah. can use it and apply it. I had the experience of submitting a paper to a couple of journals that were suggested to me by um, folks at Colorado State and having the, the paper essentially either major, major revisions required or rejected. And then I realized after thinking about who the audience was for that paper, that those were not the journals that that audience would read. Yeah. And I found the right journal and the paper was accepted with some great constructive comments. Um, but that was a whole new process for me too, is to kind of think about it from the audience perspective too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do, so have you, I guess the flip side of that is, how do you come at being a peer reviewer? What are the kinds of things you look at when you're asked to provide a review of somebody else's work? Well, I guess, I don't know. I think I, I just have fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like, it's really interesting to read the projects that folks are doing. Um, it, for me, I think so the audience is certainly something to think about but then also kind of how are people going to interpret what they're saying so I'll a lot of times I'll catch people on well you can't like you said with the conclusions like that's not really a conclusion of this project that's not what you tested mm -hmm. um, that's interesting and maybe mm -hmm. it's a question that comes out of it but it shouldn't be a conclusion. So those are kind of the main things I've been looking at as like, mm -hmm. we need to be really careful about what we're saying definitively. Oh, this is because those get cherry picked yeah, <laughs> and, or, or yeah. misinterpreted. Um, yeah. So I think those, those are probably the big things. Um, methods, you, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that it was <clears throat> tested appropriately, but even if, I don't know. I think there's room for, there's some wiggle room for some of that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's, it seems like sometimes the advance that a particular study makes are in the methods as much as in the conclusions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Methods provide us a different way of looking at something that, that can be revolutionary, which I think yeah. is, yeah. is important. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges with really innovative work? <laughs> <laughs> like you said, new methods. <laughs> you know, and that gets to some extent to peer review. I think one of the, the ways where peer review can go wrong is um, it can become a gatekeeper to new ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that hopefully doesn't happen, but I, but I think it can. And I think in particular, um, there can be some, some gender issues relative to that gatekeeping in agriculture. Um, and there can be some, some, uh, other issues where it, it doesn't conform to kind of the norm of, of the old ag school. Yeah. Um, faculty. I've heard that a lot and not even just from producers, but from reviewers. Yeah. Yeah. This is not how it's done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is research. Like, isn't that the point is to be innovative and come up with new ideas? Think of a new way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your question again? I went off on a down a oh, rabbit just, hole. Uh, what are the challenges for kind of really new and innovative work? I think that's one of them. I think, I think um, just as much as we in production agriculture can get set in our ways, researchers can get set in their ways. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so I think that's one. I think I think in particular in 
agricultural research and, and, and livestock research, especially um, a disconnect from kind of the real world can be a real challenge. It's, it's one thing to say, <clears throat> you ought to do X, Y, and Z, and you'll, it will solve all your problems on the ranch without knowing what other problems are on that person's list for the day. Um, and ha having that direct connection back into the research world, I think is maybe one of the most valuable functions of extension. It's not just extending work. It's, it's making sure that people's real world questions get back to the people that can do the research. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that mycoplasma ovus thing they were yeah. saying it was more common in flocks that vaccinated. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Well, because so it can be transmitted uh, through needle injections. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've had that conversation with cattle with anaplasma yeah. and changing needles. And so yeah. there's been interesting work, not on, you know, not telling everyone, okay, well, you have to change needles between every animal, but like, okay, what can be done to try yeah. to disinfect or wipe or there? People have looked at different ways of trying to minimize that risk of transmission between needle pokes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, things like that. Like you can't just saying this is what you have to do to <laughs> <laughs> isn't going to fly, especially when a disease like anaplasma and mycoplasma ovus can also be transmitted by biting flies or, you know, right. so it's like if that right. was truly the only way that that disease was spread, maybe you'd get some buy-in. <laughs> right. Right. But there's so many other factors to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really good illustration. A really good example. Yeah. I think another thing, like with your grazing and fire interests, there's not a lot of funding streams for those, you know, like where do you go? And so why is funding so important for research? <laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. I'm just a poor <laughs> county advisor. <laughs> Um, so in, in all seriousness, I think funding is important, but I also think that's one of the strengths of the extension system is that to some we're extent, efficient. <laughs> we're efficient. And if the input for a particular project is my time, maybe that's where I need to spend my time. Now, I, mm -hmm. I do think that there's some value in, in funding so that we can also, um, I think funding equals capacity in some um, respects, but I also think that even at a county extension level, if we have funding to have somebody who's new to the field come and learn how to do the things that we do, mm -hmm. that helps in terms of our long-term succession too, that we're training new people to, to do this kind of work. And I think there's, there's a lot of value and capacity building from that standpoint. Yeah. I guess I'm a little jaded because most of what I'm interested in, there hasn't been a lot of funding. Yeah. <laughs> and, so and you make it work. <laughs> just we've done it anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but that said, what, I mean, from your perspective, um, I think small ruminants have kind of been like minor crops in terms of crop production and, and pest protection that there's not a lot of funding in the minor crops. And so we don't have the money to go through the, the long-term studies to prove a particular material. And I think small ruminants in particular in, in medicine have been that way too. Yeah. So what What's your experience with funding? So I think that's true. There's not a lot of funding that is specifically set aside for small ruminants. There is some, um, it's not, necessarily enough funding to get done what it is allocated to do which is frustrating which is probably why some of that work takes a little bit longer to get done because it mm -hmm. takes longer to kind of kind of get those funds together um but i do think that we can there i i am on a couple of projects that have some big funding sources and they were just very creative in how they um were able to communicate the needs for that funding mm -hmm. um 
And I think that there is opportunity there that it just takes a lot of work in finding the right collaborators and being creative in communicating what the needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we I think we tend to say we need this for sheep and not goats. We need this for goats and not sheep. And cattle are totally different. And that's true. <laughs> but if we are a little bit more collaborative, we might get more done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's hard because they are not the same species, but there might be a way that we can leverage some of these sort of funding streams to mm-hmm. benefit all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't really figured that out, but that's one of my hopes and goals is to try to be <laughs> a little bit more creative with funding. Because for me, funding is capacity. Right. Like right. I have all of these interests and all of these ideas that I could do in one day, but I physically <laughs> cannot. <laughs> right. Right. So training graduate and it's all it's graduate student uh, salary, tuition, a lot of it. That's what a lot of these academic researchers, a lot of their funds go to tuition right. and salary, which is very small, but for graduate students so that they can one, they get the training that they deserve and they get to focus on these projects because if they don't have that funding while they're in that program, they have to TA, right? which takes away from their time and ability to study and do the projects that you want them working on. So. Well, and I, I was the beneficiary of that system to get my master's degree. You know, the Rustici Rangeland and Cattle Endowment um, allowed yeah. me to get my master's and do some research on drought impacts. Um, and I think that's a 24 year old me didn't know that was a, was a possibility. Um, and I think for younger people wrapping up their undergraduate programs and thinking about graduate school, there are some great opportunities out there. If you, if you know where to look and who to ask and, and what people on campus to talk to about it. Doesn't California wool growers have a scholarship for students? They have an undergrad scholarship. Okay. ASI has a graduate student scholarship. Oh, okay. Um, which is a, a great program too. So that, that's definitely something to for folks to look at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that strikes me as you were talking um, about kind of the, the value of the extension system in addition to that conduit that goes back and forth is, um, is this idea that um, there are people out in the community, whether it's a geographic community or a community of interest Mm -hmm. that kind of have this network on all sides of that equation, you know, it's partly the, the transfer of information back and forth, but it's also, um, it's pretty unusual to be a researcher that doesn't have to, to be somebody in a, in a small community that doesn't have to go to another organization in order to advance their career. And that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing if it's somebody who feels stuck, but, but I think that is a real strength of the extension system and that we've got the ability to, to invest long-term in a particular question or particular community Oh. Yeah. And it, and research is rarely short term and yeah. And, you know, you've <laughs> answered all the questions you can retire. Yeah, <laughs> I was I it was it's been a while cuz fall just flew by, but I was sitting down and talking with Dr. Stott about his experience with vaccines and things mm-hmm. like that and he And what vaccine was, did Dr. Stott The foothill abortion vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> And it was just, it was amazing because he was literally reflecting on his entire career. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it, it's careers are, you know, answering one question. And that's, it's amazing to have people so dedicated and focused to yeah. commit their career to things like that. Yeah. I had had a brief conversation with him along the same lines at the California Cattlemen's Association convention oh, cool. last week. And it, I had had the chance for one year to, to work with him at Sierra Foothill, mostly collecting fetuses that I got to 
drive down to Davis, but um, <laughs> just to know all the people that he interacted with during the course of that effort was really, really interesting too. Yeah. And like you said, the community of interest, because a lot of what he was able to accomplish was because of those relationships that he developed with folks from industry and from yeah. those pharmaceutical companies. And yeah, yeah. Very cool. That kind of leads to my other question about where funding can come from and some of the just things that you have to be aware of with different funding <laughs> streams. <laughs> There's no strings attached to any of that. <laughs> um, you know, I think we're, despite some of the challenges in funding, I think there's some some pretty great resources in the extension world, like the Western mm -hmm. Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program, which um, is is really focused on applied research and on making sure that producers are part of the research. Um, I think that's a, for a lot of my programming, has been a great source of funds. I think um, kind of tangentially related, I think where we're working with producers and asking them to do things above and beyond their normal everyday work, that funding sources that can at least respond to the time that they've committed to, to helping their industry Mm -hmm. is really important and not all funding sources acknowledge that importance. I think that, yeah, that extension is a big, a big one for me to drill into your question a little deeper. Tell me more about what you mean. So I think one of the challenges that I see with like public funding is that they're, they tend to be very specific in what they're mm -hmm. looking for, which it's good. I mean, hopefully it's driven by an industry need. And mm -hmm. that was kind of where I think it ties in that where we sit in the middle between industry and academia. So there's all these calls for proposals and they're there because of people lobbying for research funding for these things. And so they don't go, that funding doesn't go directly back to industry. It doesn't go Mm -hmm. You know, necessarily, sometimes it goes to the, um, gosh, what is it called? Their research service, <laughs> the ARS, mm -hmm. I forget what the A stands for. <laughs> Agricultural. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> my, my daughter works for him. I'd be, I'd be in real oh, trouble perfect. at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> and but yeah, so, you know, a lot of times they have funding, but that the topic areas that they can look into is dependent on what the industries say that they need. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that I think is true also for a lot of the priority areas that come, you know, even for our internal grant here, the CIFA grants, those priority areas are meant to be determined by uh, our stakeholders that we meet with every year and make sure that we're still meeting those demands. And so it's really important for industry groups to recognize that and keep putting that pressure. I know it's hard for, you know, smaller groups, but it, you know, that squeaky wheel is the one that gets the grease <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Turn that question around to you just a little bit. Um, Try, try to phrase this right. So I sent an email out to some of my local, what I call clientele, ranchers that I work with here locally with an idea and asked for feedback on it and, and ended the email with something like, you know, if there's something else I should be working on, let me know. And a mentor told me, hey, this is a great idea, something you ought to work on. But don't discount the fact that you're going to see questions beyond the horizon that producers may not even realize are relevant yet. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid to find some of those things that, that seem to be beyond the scope of what folks are dealing with day to day, but maybe in five or 10 or 15 years are going to be really important. Take some of those risks too and, and, and think outside the box. How do you balance that? And well, and that's where, where do you find where, funding for that? 
Well, that's that is where I think those truly innovative projects are really challenging is finding the funding, mm -hmm. finding someone to say. So, you know, I'll put in a project for something similar and the review that I get back says, well, this isn't documented to be an important problem. Right. <laughs> like, but the project is to do that. <laughs> right, right. Right. So it's hard. I think it's hard to overcome even the mindset of folks that are trained to be innovative. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if there's a way to figure out how to even do pilot studies and mm -hmm. things like that, then can kind of get that seed planted. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are really important. It takes, a, I imagine it would take a while for those to take off, but I agree. I think those are really important as well. I I think creating as a as a somebody who wishes he was a researcher more, um, creating space to be creative is sometimes difficult too because you get bogged down in in kind of the day to day things that you got to work on, and I think you know, particularly in these kinds of jobs where there's an expectation that we do research and we do extension, but we also do public service and university service. And, and some of us have even larger administrative roles, um, you know, creating that space, not only to think about those big questions, but then to sit down and write about what you're already doing can be a real challenge sometimes. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of the, ex I get most motivated and excited, or at least I have that kind of creative thought process whenever I go to a meeting. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, whether I'm actually actively having a conversation with someone or I'm hearing someone else talk about their, their research and I'm like, oh, well, I wonder if, you know, they're doing this or, mm -hmm. and I think those are really, I'm, I don't, I know that there is funding for county-based advisors to participate in those meetings but I don't know how often you guys are able to make that happen because I know you guys are super busy probably not as much as we should um yeah not to totally shift gears but what what in your mind is the value of kind of this non-peer-reviewed publications or or things like that is is there a different audience sometimes that we've got to write for that that maybe peer review is not as important. Yeah. Or... Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the value for white papers or blogs or any of those is putting a lot of pieces together. Mm -hmm. So more mm -hmm. of not necessarily a, a formal review, but. What a know, synthesis. A, kind of. Yeah. 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 And I think that's really valuable. Yeah. You know, and and the focus can be on a new research topic mm -hmm. or new findings, but being able to bring that together and how that applies, or mm -hmm. potentially what are the questions that come out of that, um, I think those are interesting. Does good formal scientific writing tell a story? Is there a narrative arc to a scientific paper, or should there be? Yeah, I think so. I think at least in the introduction and the discussion, mm -hmm. um, I think there's missed opportunities if there's not. It's interesting because that introduction is really, it's that's kind of the review, right? Where you, mm -hmm. you're giving the background for why you've done this study. And mm -hmm. so you should be able to, a lot of your citations tend to be in that area. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm why this matters of, yeah yeah the history of yeah how you've gotten to where you are yeah yeah it's kind of underneath it <laughs> yeah what what kinds of meetings do you find or or gatherings do you find most useful in your work what are there particular organizations or or styles of meetings that are more helpful than others it's changed so much for me over the years. When I was a student, it was just, you know, going to like the um, ABP meetings or AEP. And what do those stand for? 
Those are the American Association of Bovine Practitioners and the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners is combined with bovine practitioners. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. And those are always, they, especially when I was a student, it was just fun to get to kind of see people that are up there giving those talks and meet you know, folks from around the country that have similar interests and are seeing similar things. Um, when I came back into the internal medicine world, going to the ACVIM was like, whew, that's the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. And <laughs> oh man, those talks were mind blowing. And they're very <laughs> interesting, but they're also, some of them can be a bit challenging to apply even clinically. Mm -hmm. um, so the large animal side tends to be a bit more clinically minded. <laughs> so, but they're very, very interesting and kind of that kind of forefront of medicine. Um, but now I don't know. I really like um, <laughs> I like the U.S. Animal Health meetings because mm -hmm. they're you have the state veterinarians, you have USDA, and you're where there's a lot of um, ideally we're talking about the kind of really critical things that need to be happening right now in mm -hmm. industries, mm -hmm. um, and in medicine, um, and how that also relates to public health. Mm -hmm. So I think those are really interesting and it's kind of a neat group of people. You have folks from diagnostic labs across the country. So you kind of get a feel for what people are seeing across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, really fun. <laughs> I think for me, the Society for Range Management is one that I would think of. And partly for me, it's because, um, well, the name says it, it's, it's management. It's not just all pure science. It's, yeah. it's kind of involving that human and, and economic aspect. And I think that's part of what is interesting to me about extension too, is that there's this social science part of everything we do in terms, not only in terms of how people learn, but um, who's likely to adopt new practices first and who's, um, who's focused on the economics of it. And I, that's one of the reasons I, I find the Society for Range Management stimulating. Another one that I've gone to recently, I didn't know it existed till I got this job was the vertebrate pest conference. Hmm. And it's like this really fascinating combination of wildlife scientists, um, pest control people, um, you know, all across the board of people that are working with wildlife um, in an agri largely in an agricultural context, but also in an urban context. And that's been interesting to me because the methodologies that different parts of that world use. Yeah. You know, the sheep guys aren't necessarily talking to the, the rodent pest control guys in any other form but that. Yeah. And so thinking about kind of their methodologies and, and the questions so, they're asking. And that's why I'm really excited. So <laughs> I have a project that I, I presented at um, Wool Growers. It's the external parasite project for yeah. sheep. Yeah. And one of my big motivators for that is it's kind of a first time collaboration with Dr. Amy Murillo and she's a vet entomologist at UC Riverside. Yeah. And she, most of her work is with poultry, but she's really excited about this. She's also a spinner and a knitter. And <laughs> <laughs> so it should be really cool. And, but just like you said, this is, this project is just a seed project or a pilot project to see where we can go from here. But the, one of the ultimate goals would be to develop a um, integrated pest management program. Mm. And because like mm -hmm. you said, they think so differently and how they develop those is so yep. interesting to me. Yep. And we don't have that for sheep. And she said, even in the integrated pest management world, they are really interesting, interested in working more with pests as they relate to livestock because mm -hmm. a lot of what they do is plant pests and other things like that. So um, I think the whole world of predator research is similar to mm -hmm. that too, right? That, mm -hmm. that um, 
we could learn a lot from integrated pest management, I think, in terms of, of integrating different approaches to protecting livestock from predators. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe the predators would benefit from that yeah. too. Yeah. And Ryan's going to be really mad that I'm advocating for a coyote now, but <laughs> he'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Just have him skip this episode. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I had one more question, but I don't know that we need to answer. <laughs> oh, I think we should. <laughs> what are some of the challenges with private industry funded studies? It's a good question. And I guess part of it gets to the definition of private industry funded, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the commodity boards on the crop side of California agriculture have done a great job of assessing themselves and providing funding for research that address real world questions. And I think to some extent, those of us that work in the livestock community haven't had that opportunity to a large extent. I think it's interesting that the California Cattle Council now is assessing cattle producers to be able to do some cattle-focused research. Because mm -hmm. most of their funding, right, the checkoff goes for post-harvest research. Is that so right? there's, there's two different entities now. There's oh. the California Beef Council, which does post-harvest and, and does promotion but they've also established this cattle council, which is a, a similar voluntary assessment, but can focus on production research. Um, and so they're actually working on some fire related issues. I think one of the challenges when it comes to kind of public perception is that whether there are strings attached to that money or not, right. the perception is there that, that the source of funding drives the conclusions to some yeah. extent. Cause I've definitely, when I look at an art or when I look at a new paper, I'll look and see where the funding mm -hmm. source is from. And if mm -hmm. it's, you know, let's go back to a company that doesn't exist anymore, a Fort Dodge prod product <laughs> that is funded by Fort Dodge. Right. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Just, you know, raises a hair. I think there's a difference between kind of a, a self-assessment across a variety of interests within an industry mm -hmm. and a company that has a particular product that they're yeah. trying to prove. Um, I think to some extent, some of the vaccine research is a, is a gray area there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and livestock vaccines in, in particular. Not that vaccines are controversial right now. No, <laughs> anyway, but... <laughs> um, I, so do you, I've had this conversation with other folks and, and people have been kind of all over the board on it. Is there a value in the sheep industry and in having some way to assess ourselves to do research beyond consumer awareness or, or consumer acceptance of our product? Is there a value in having a source of funding that could do some of those types of things about fire or about life cycle analyses. And, and if it were industry funding, would, would the conclusions be suspect? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's value. I just, I think, hmm, that's <laughs> I don't know. I think there's so much value in also promoting that whole lobbying aspect, right? Like going mm -hmm. to the state and saying, this is important for your state and having a voice. It's not just that you're asking for funding, but right. now your legislators know who you are. Like it's double, it, there's more right. than one impact that you gain from that. Just funding things from within the industry, I think is great because it shows the, in, that the industry is behind it potentially. And that, you know, there's a true need for this research that's being done. But I think there is value in asking the state to back it and or meet match funds or however that 
you know, could whatever form that could take, I think there's really important value in speaking up and showing who you are and, you know, as an industry to those big players. I do too. And I think similarly, there's a, there's a real responsibility on the part of researchers to demonstrate that the conclusions aren't tied to the source of funding, you know, and, and to seek funding that has that kind of freedom of inquiry. That's, that's important. um, Yeah. And serving the public interest too. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. I, you know, I think, It is interesting, and I'll use the context of predators again. Um, It's interesting in the context of predators, people's perceptions of where you're coming from and how that influences the conclusions or recommendations that you make. But I also think, and I'm not saying that I've got this, I, I think this is true of any research that if you've invested the time in becoming knowledgeable about a topic and you've approached the topic ethically and objectively, that you've got some social capital that if your conclusions are different than what the accepted norm might be, you've got the ability to help people see things a different way. And that's a fine line to walk sometimes. Yeah. And it's hard depending on the type of research too. Right. Right. Because right. like, like you said, sometimes it depends on how you ask the question. Right. Um, can determine the results that you get. Right. Um, so right. that whole planning part that I tend to get hung up on, <laughs> <laughs> making sure that I'm actually testing a hypothesis that, or like I'm proving it wrong, mm-hmm. not proving myself right. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's important to make sure that we're approaching research in mm-hmm. that way. It's not always possible to do that though. So, Does research always answer the question you started out with? No. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah that we just got a, a paper published in rangelands that'll come out i think in the next issue on drought and one of the things that came out of that because it was i i, I kind of like the johnny sheep seed in the rangelands folks i i keep telling them that sheep are livestock too <laughs> but one of the things that came out of it was that that there's this interesting sense of flexibility with small ruminants when it comes to drought that maybe isn't um, as evident in cattle production. Mm-hmm. And that opens up a whole new realm of questions and, and things to think about when it comes to, to dealing with the climate and dealing with drought and, and other factors of rangeland management. So it's, it'd be interesting to see who picks that up and runs with it now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Well, thanks. I'm glad we talked about this. <laughs> Dude, we'll see what Ryan thinks. I know. <laughs> I was a little nervous. But... <laughs> it's good. You know, it's his fault. He turned us loose on the topic. It's yep. good. It's good. Yep. But I think too, like you said, with extension, we're all, we're definitely always looking for what's important for folks. So, yeah, absolutely. And so I would put a plug in for a couple of projects that I hope people participate in. Um, we're doing this cool photo vo- voice project called Sheep and Shepherds in the Modern World. And it's a, a short survey, maybe take you 10 minutes to do. And um, we're asking people to send three photos that represent their interactions with sheep in their part of the world. So if you're interested in that, contact me through Instagram or carrier pigeon or something and uh, get you the (laughs) survey. Is the survey survey online? The survey is online, yeah. They can take it on their phone? They can take it on their phone. They can submit pictures right from their phone. That sounds so easy. Pretty, pretty (laughs) cool. It's actually been fun. We've gotten some really good kind of perspectives on where sheep fit in the modern world. 
be interesting to see what people think. Yeah. What let's hear one you've got going before we close out. What's a project that you're in the middle of? Oh gosh. Pick one. Okay. So we've already talked about the Coxidia one. <laughs> we've talked about the um the external parasite one today. We I am working with a a resident, a livestock herd health and reproduction resident, and she's in her MPPM, which is a master's of preventative veterinary medicine this year. And we're doing kind of a needs assessment survey on um, sheep mastitis. So, oh, cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. Trying to look at some of the practices and um, just understand a little bit more if it's a problem, if people are interested plan it's one of those kind of hypothesis generating studies where hopefully it'll it'll pose those questions that will drive our next steps cool yeah very cool lots going on that's exciting (laughs) very cool yeah well Well, (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'll take us out This has been Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye, Dan. (laughs) All right. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah.